0: So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to look at the last eight verses of this book. We have come to the finale in our study of the book of James. It's easy to read James as though it is individualistic, just me and Jesus. It starts off with my affliction, my need for wisdom, my need for faith, my need to listen and not be angry, God giving me good gifts, my religion, my bad attitude of partiality, my faith shown by works, my tongue, my wisdom, my friendship with the world, my pride, my business ventures, my employment of other workers, my repentance and my patience. Tell me that's not how you read it. I confess that's how I have read it in the past, like it's all about me. And I suppose if you do a speed reading of James, you might be able to look at it that way. But if you stare into the perfect law of liberty, uh, you will see a community of exiles living without power or privilege. That's how the letter starts. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. It is written to communities of faith. 15 times he uses the word brothers. That may seem like a formality or a salutation, but it's a familial term. You use it when you speak to a family, but not when you speak to an only child. Looking even more closely, you'll notice how much of this is directed uh, at relationships and your participation in community. Even at the beginning, he sets the tone Uh, with the forms of the verbs he uses. You all count it all joy when you all fall into various trials. Even the most personal parts of this book are plural. The implanted word saves your souls, all your souls. Your true religion requires widows and orphans, members of the community in need and without privilege. Otherwise, you can't have true religion. It could hardly be more obvious in the second chapter when it starts in a meeting. You have a rich person walk into your assembly. It isn't merely whether or not you have an attitude of partiality. It's whether you act towards someone else inappropriately in the community. What are the works by which you show your faith? In chapter 2, verse 15, you have a brother or sister in need. And you don't have that without a community. I could go on and on because it is a community you, you set ablaze with your fiery tongue. It's the community that you bite and devour when you make war with one another and you're friends with the world. It's one another you grumble about or complain to. So why do I make a big deal about this community? because if COVID-19 did anything, it blew up Christian community. It became easy for spectators to step away and it made it hard on servants. The pandemic not only made it harder to live with one another, it made it dangerous to do so. It made it socially acceptable to keep a social distance. It gave the government stamp of approval to living as an isolated individual. It may have worked to spectate in church, in the church of the past, but you'll have to participate in the church of the future. Previously, it was culturally acceptable to come and go as you please because it appeared that the organizing principle of the church was to come and listen to a speech on Sunday morning. In the future, though, you'll need to invest yourselves in a prayerful and pursuing community, as James suggests. Because every aspect of the life of faith is lived in a prayerful and pursuing community. This is what he says, beginning of verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Every aspect of a life of faith is lived in a prayerful and pursuing community. All of life is signified not only by the topics that you might find in the book of James that I listed earlier, but by the variety of circumstances that he lists here in this last part, all of them require a response of prayer. The supernatural community of which we are part part, prays and expects God to do something supernatural. It starts off with personal prayer. If anyone among you has misfortune, let him pray. If anyone among you... This phrase occurs three times in the New Testament, all of them in this passage. Note the clear reference to the community. He could have said, if you are suffering hardship, but he doesn't. He says, if any among you in the community, he emphasizes the community. James distinguishes this suffering from the illness mentioned in the next verse misfortune might be a good translation of this. It could be that you wrecked your car. It could be that you lost your job or had a spat with your spouse or underwent surgery or endured a financial setback. He has in mind someone for whom any number of a wide variety of problems may have happened. And the response is to pray. Thankfully, that's not the only thing that happens, right? Because if you're cheerful, sing. On the other hand, when you're cheerful, he wants us to sing praises if you reach out to God only when things are going badly or when you need something. You betray the fact that you think that God is your personal vending machine or your personal bellboy, and you don't want to be guilty of that. So sing praise. And when you sing praise, you give credit where credit is due. I just hope and pray the songs that we sing at church help you have both the lyrics and the tunes to sing praise to God when you're cheerful. And then there's the third case now uh, that requires prayer. The first is when you have misfortune. The second is when you're cheerful. Now, when you are sick, call the elders to pray. Now, this assumes a few things. It assumes a person who is sick is bad enough that they're likely unable to come themselves to the elders. They may be bedridden since the elders are to pray over them, presuming they're lying down. They clearly are still in their right mind, so they're able to call for the elders. The initiative lies with the sick person. It's beyond the scope of eldering to go around looking for people to oil up with your anointing oil. It's significant too that he says call for the elders of the church. This community that James assumes, this community that he's talking about has structure. And it has offices. And the idea is not that any of us live as isolated individuals, but that we live in a community. And these elders are to pray for the sick person, anointing with oil. While they pray, they anoint with oil. The anointing is the auxiliary part of the experience of prayer. I think the purpose of this anointing is to mark off the person for God's special care, much like the anointing of a king might be or the the anointing of a priest. It appears that the prayer of faith is the elders who pray in faith. That this prayer of faith, or faithful praying, is done by the elders, not the sick person. It's as though the sick person calls the elders in order to borrow their faith. It is this prayer of faith that can save the sick. And I believe that this salvation has a physical reference. It saves their physical life. I want you to notice as well that the emphasis is on the Lord. The Lord will raise him up. You anoint him in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith is faith in the Lord. The Lord gets the credit for the healing. And I probably need to add a couple other things as well. This passage says nothing about a gift of healing. Healing, the healing is not part of the office of elder. The Lord heals. The Lord raises up. And he is, of course, free not to raise someone up. He is, after all, the Lord. In addition, it doesn't look here like someone or the elders need a certain amount of faith to make the healing happen, as though if you have this much faith, you won't be healed, but if you get just a little more, you'll be healed. There's nothing that suggests an amount of faith has anything to do with this experience. Let him call the elders and uh, let them pray over uh, him, anointing him with oil, and the Lord will raise him up. My first experience of this happened uh, when I was a child, really. A young man in my parents' youth group uh, went away to college and then developed uh, some kind of cancer. And I can only remember a few of the details, but the church had a prayer event of some kind for him, and his next visit with the doctor uh, showed that the cancer was completely gone. And I'd never seen anything like this before, and it made an impression on me. And along those lines, as a pastor, I've prayed for many, many people and seen some of them recover miraculously. I've even prayed for people and said to myself, oh, this will never happen. Only to see the Lord heal them anyway. Because the Lord will raise them up, and it is the Lord who deserves the credit. Healing is not about the strength of your faith, it's about the strength of the one you have faith in. It's not fundamentally about gifts or a gift of healing, but about the Father of light from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Note, too, the spiritual aspect to this physical healing. It, it, It concludes with saying, the sins, if they've done them, will be forgiven. The healing will be complete, body and soul. So there is both a physical and spiritual component to this healing. Then he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here again, the community aspect of this is unmistakable. There is no Jesus and me here. In fact, it appears to be the most reliable, most trustworthy of communities that you're participating in because you can confess your sins to them. They'll pray for you, and you'll be healed. Generally, you confess to someone you have injured. It's always appropriate to confess your sins to God. If you hurt an individual, you should confess to that individual. And if you've sinned against the community, confess to them. When we say confess, we mean to Uh, to agree or to say the same thing as, so you're coming at it from their perspective to agree with them that yes, in fact, you have hurt them. That's confessing your sins to the community. And I think this healing here is relational and it takes place between the offender and the community. I love the honesty here, it requires confession, prayer and forgiveness and healing. Because love is not easy to maintain. It takes work to live in a loving relationship. It takes work to live in community. You get hurt and you do the hurting. But you don't withdraw and you don't walk away. and you don't take the easy road. Instead, you take the initiative. I mean, it may take some self-reflection before you have any idea that you've hurt somebody or that you've offended the community. And so after the self-reflection, you need to confess and take initiative uh, to move back into community. You can't just do nothing and expect it to turn out fine. So he says, confess your sins uh, to one another, pray for one another, So that you might be healed and then he begins to talk about how powerful prayer is when done by a normal person get this his whole point here of talking about elijah is to say he's normal it strikes me that he doesn't seem normal he seems sort of heroic or superhuman, but he isn't. James' point is that he is like you and like me. It's interesting because the prayer here of Elijah, to which James refers, isn't recorded in the Old Testament. But Elijah's track record as a normal man of prayer is recorded. One, comment, one commentator highlights these recordings in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 to shed light on Elijah's prayer life. So let me read a little bit of what he said to you. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises a widow's dead son. And this this is what the commentator says. Now he could be sure that the Lord hearkened to the voice of Elijah. 1 Kings 17, 22. in a prayer, a mere man can move God. Then in chapter 18, Elijah moves out into public ministry. He proceeds at once in public ministry to challenge the prophets of Baal and Baal himself precisely on the issue of prayer. I never really thought of it this way. Each party is to call on the name of its God. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. It is not the marvel of fire that's the central point. The fire is incidental to the sort of test Elijah proposed, a sacrifice which needed to be ignited. The point is this. Which of the contestants, Baal or Yahweh, can answer prayer? To this extent, Elijah is supremely the man of prayer. He is ready to allow the whole issue of the reality of God to be decided by one factor. There is a God who answers prayer. When we come to chapter 19, we move into a different scene altogether. Elijah is in the throes of exhaustion and depression, and he prays to die. But he doesn't die. You you may remember how his life does end though, right? He is ushered away in a flaming chariot. This prophet who prayed to die is one of the few people who never did. Once again, the truth is borne out that a mere human praise and the results which follow only God could produce. Then in connection with our passage, 1 Kings 17.1 quotes Elijah as saying that there will be no rain except by my word. And before the actual onset of the rainstorm, which broke the long drought, Elijah is pictured crouching low on Mount Carmel. James reveals to us that the word of 1 Kings 17.1 is to be understood as the prophet's word in prayer and that the crouching position is that of a prayerful suppliant. The drought and the rain both came because Elijah prayed. This is such great encouragement. Uh, The original text of this says literally, it wasn't that he prayed some super prayer, it just says, with prayer he prayed, or praying he prayed. And the meaning is not his fervency or his frequency or the, the greatness of his prayer. He just prayed. That and nothing more. Another author puts it correctly when he says, not that Elijah put up a particularly perfect, fervent prayer, but that praying was precisely what he did. The general truth which James is drawing out of the history of Elijah is expressed in verse 17. Human prayer, divine results, period. To withhold rain is something only God can do. Verse 18 draws it out a little farther. Prayer operates even in the apparently fixed laws of the natural order. It can master the forces of heaven. Prayer is also the key to earthly blessing and fruitfulness. God the Creator orders the life of the world in light of the prayers of His people. So we're encouraged to pray from Elijah. The immediate context, verses 16 through 18, is verses 13 through 18. In a word, James urges that all life should be lived with immediate reference to God, bringing its joys to Him in praise and its sorrows to Him in prayer. The contrasting states of physical ill and spiritual ill are undoubtedly meant to embrace every distress which may come our way. In fact, there is no situation in which prayer is not the proper Christian response. May God help us to be a community that prays. And then he continues, these are his last words in this letter. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This life of faith is lived in a prayerful community and it is lived in a pursuing community. We note again his terminology. He says, my brothers. He has the family in view. This is the way the family or the community operates. They pursue one another. In addition, he he goes back to his refrain, anyone among you. And he points us again to the community that cares and pursues. And so there is a stated problem here. The problem is someone wanders from the truth. Wandering from the truth is to act in such a way that you're not living by the truth. It's not merely that you have intellectual deception or some postmodern relativism. It is a lifestyle not in accord with truth. This should be no surprise, right? Faith, for James, is not an intellectual thing either, is it? It is made manifest by your works. Faith is a faithful response to God's character and covenant promises. James is intensely practical. He doesn't have time for vaporous ideas. He is a man of action. And so, just like faith is action, so also is the problem of wandering from the truth. That is something you do in action. That's the problem. The solution then is someone pursues and turns him around from the error of his ways. And I have to say, this involves, first of all, noticing. Noticing that a brother or a sister is wandering. You notice first, and then you take initiative. And you pursue the one who is off course. And so there's someone who's wondering and there's someone who pursues. But it's interesting to me that pursuing is not the command. That the the force of these two verses rests in the start of verse 20. Know this. The command is for you to know this. Whoever brings him back saves his soul and covers a multitude of sins. That's what you need to know. That's the command. You must know this. So the command is one of encouragement. Be encouraged. Know that if you go, it could make an eternity of difference your initiative, your pursuit, will have an eternal effect. I mean, wow. What a note of eternal hope this book ends on. If you invest in your community, if you put yourself out there, you may be the agent that God uses to do his saving work in the soul of someone who is walking down the wrong road. Think of it. That is amazing. I mean, so many of us think that we should wait for other people to come to us but here he's talking about a community that pursues one another so that no one really is sitting around hoping that someone will come. And then he says it covers a multitude of sins. And that's what love does. That's what we're talking about. 1 Peter 4, 8 says love covers a multitude of sins. Love is what builds this community up. And this is a hard line to walk because what he's saying here is that to live a life of faith means that the community is more important to you than your comfort. And whatever inconvenience you experience in the pursuit of someone else, this is the encouragement, it is worth it. It is worth it to pursue relationships with other people. I think, in addition, it's fair to say that some of the sin that is covered when somebody rescues somebody else uh, from their wandering is sin that may be perpetrated against the one who's trying to do the rescue. The soul that is acting out of a lie seldom loves to be confronted and may in fact lash out and be hurtful and may make it miserable for you to be the one to show them love. But know this, your initiative covers a multitude of sins. You might not even do it perfectly. You might be awkward when you go to try and help And guess what? Your love, your initiative will cover a multitude of sins. Theirs and yours. And you may even save their soul from eternal ruin, and it will be eternally worth it. I mean, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful place to end, I think. This kind of praying and pursuing community may be inconvenient, but I want you to know the future depends on it. We grew accustomed to gatherings where we could be spectators during Christendom. Christendom was when Christians enjoyed cultural advantages. But we will need this inconvenient kind of community post-Christendom. When we are outnumbered and outgunned, we'll need people who will pray for one another and pray with one another. We'll need people who will pursue one another. The mission of Jesus and the journey to the heavenly city can only happen when a community takes seriously its privilege and obligation to pray for one another and to pursue one another in love. This is the mission of Jesus. And it's the mission of Jesus that he is still on. He is still praying for you. Can you fathom that? Not only did He pray for you when He was physically on earth, which is what John 17 says, Scripture says He is now at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Romans 8.34 Your pursuit, your prayer is the mission of Jesus. Your pursuit of those who wander from the truth is exactly the mission of Jesus was on when the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. This morning, we are going to celebrate the success of Jesus in his mission. Think of it. Jesus left us a celebration, one we even name after our community, right? We call it Communion. It is meant to be one of the hallmarks of the community and the rituals of the family. We celebrate and remember the mission of Jesus to rescue us. And we remember the success of that mission that puts us into community that is called a church. And so it's appropriate to remind ourselves by way of a family meal that we are a community that is surrounding Jesus at the center in a community that is following Jesus, just like they did in that last supper. So we're going to celebrate communion now and invite you to get uh, your uh, elements. And I just want to say that if you're exploring Christianity uh, but have not yet uh, committed yourself to Jesus or trusted Jesus, then I just want to say you're in the right place and you're looking uh, for the right things. Uh, But this communion celebration is really not for you. It's for those who can look back with thanksgiving that Jesus has, in fact, saved them from their sins. You know, of course, Jesus can save you from your sins right now if you have a faithful response to his character and his promises. And so if Jesus has rescued you, I want to invite you to join me in remembering the success of his mission when he rescued me, when he rescued you, when he forgave my sins, when he forgave your sins, when he forgave our sins. And so I invite you to take the bread. Received from the Lord, I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, the success and the triumph of Jesus in his mission To seek and to save that which is lost is so um, sweet to our souls. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus uh, lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, and now makes intercession for us. So, Father, as we remember him in this communion service, we just want to say that we love Uh, You, we love Jesus, we're so thankful for all that he has done for us, and recognize that while there is nothing in us that makes us uh, desirable or save-worthy, there is everything in Jesus that makes him desirable and a glorious Savior. And so we thank you for saving us, in the name of Jesus, amen.